This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., the nation's leading nonpartisan debate series, where the world's most influential minds debate the most important questions of our time, and you decide who carries the day. Progressive populism unifies and brings us all together. The Republican Party is institutionally and demographically stronger than it's been in decades. But if religion and belief in God is such a great force driving moral progress, how come it fails so abysmally? Science is very good, but it's half the equation. You need both. The U.S. does need to challenge China's unfair trade practices. Capitalism is not a blessing. It's unstable. It's unequal, it's undemocratic, and it's unsustainable ecologically. We are winning the battle against uh, famine, war, pestilence, and even death. That is thanks to capitalism. Our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience will choose the winner. As always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. For 40 years plus a few now, the U.S. has been in a most hostile relationship with the Republic of Iran, a sometimes hot war kind of conflict, in fact. And for all of that time, it's clear what the U.S. wants Iran not to be, not a state with nukes, not a nation destabilizing the Middle East, not a government exporting Islamic extremism. And to that end, the Obama administration tried a little bit of a carrot approach. The idea was give the Iranians something that would induce them to slow down their nuclear program, like, say, lifting some of the sanctions. And perhaps from that, a more moderate Iran would emerge. Well, the Trump administration threw that approach out and went in with much more stick. They tore up the nuclear deal. They slammed on more sanctions. They sent missiles to kill an Iranian general. And with what results so far? Well, we thought that question had the makings of a debate, so we had it. For this one, we partnered with the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and we brought two teams of two who are experts in the topic and who have spent collectively decades thinking about this question. And they argued yes or no to this statement, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. Our debate went in three rounds, and then our audience at the David and Joan Tritel building at the Hoover Institution voted to choose the winner. We know headlines are moving fast these days, so I want to let you know that this debate was recorded on March 4th. Some parts of the discussion, particularly about the coronavirus in Iran, will very likely have changed by the time you tune into this. So let's get started and meet our debaters. Let's meet the debaters arguing for the resolution. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Victor Davis Hansen. Victor, I just want to briefly tell everybody who you are. You're a military historian. You're a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Your most recent book is The Case for Trump. Victor, it's great to have you here. And let's meet your partner. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome H.R. McMaster. H.R., you're also a senior fellow here at Hoover. You served as a commissioned officer in the Army for 34 years, retiring as a lieutenant general. Everyone here thanks you for your service. Most recently, you were the national security advisor in the Trump administration. Again, thank you for being here tonight. H.R. McMaster. So that's the team arguing for the resolution, and we have two debaters arguing against. First, please welcome Martha Crenshaw. Hi, Martha. Um, You are one of the nation's top experts top experts in the study of terrorism. Uh, Your books include Explaining Terrorism and Counting Terrorism. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's great to have you. Thank you. And finally, your teammate, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Abbas Milani. 
Abbas, great to have you as well. You were one of the founding directors of the Iran Democracy Project here at Hoover. You are the director of the Iranian Studies Program at Stanford. It is great to have you here. Thanks so much. Thank and the you. team arguing against the resolution, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. So on to the debate. We go in three rounds. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Here to speak first in favor of the resolution, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. Please welcome former National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. Ladies and gentlemen, H.R. McMaster. We ask that you consider three facts that should lead all of us to conclude that combined diplomatic, economic, financial, and military pressure is necessary to force the Iranian regime to choose either to cease its hostility or face continued diplomatic and economic isolation until it ends its hostility to us. So, fact one, the Iranian theocratic dictatorship is driven by the ideology of the revolution and is permanently hostile to the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel, and lots of others. Consider a short highlight reel from Iran's four-decade-long proxy war against the United States. Tehran, 1979. Revolutionaries storm the U.S. Embassy and hold 52 Americans hostage for 444 days. Lebanon, October 1983. Iranian-trained terrorists kill 241 servicemen in a Marine barracks and 58 French paratroopers in their headquarters. And across the 1980s and early 1990s, they kidnap 100 foreigners and torture to death in captivity a CIA station chief and a Marine colonel. Iraq, 2004 to 2011. Iranian-backed militias kill over 600 American servicemen and women with bombs manufactured in Iran. In the past few months, Iranian forces and proxies blew up oil tankers, fired missiles into neighboring countries, attacked oil facilities, shot down a U.S. drone, attacked a U.S. embassy in Baghdad, and rocketed U.S. bases in Iraq. Fact two, conciliatory approaches have consistently failed to end the regime's hostility. President Carter sends National Security Advisor Brzezinski to Algiers to meet Iranian leaders express respect and give assurances that the United States would not try to reverse the revolution. The response, storming the U.S. Embassy and hostage-taking. George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, strikes a conciliatory tone uh, with the phrase, goodwill begets goodwill. The response, terrorist attacks from Europe to Latin America. Even George W. Bush, who wasn't really easy on, on Iran, seeks cooperation on the fight against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan after 9-11. The response, Iran supports the Taliban, gives safe haven to Al-Qaeda leaders. Then President Obama doubles down with a flawed approach to block Iran's path to a nuclear weapon and the hope that the deal's huge financial payoff will convince Iranian leaders to moderate their behavior. The response, Iran uses payoff, that payoff to intensify its destructive activities. Fact three, when Iran has moderated its behavior, it was in response to intense political, economic, and military pressure. Just two highlights. Late 1980s, in shambles from the Iran-Iraq war, Iran releases all U.S. hostages. In 2013, under pressure of sanctions, cyber attacks, covert action, and the prospect of a military strike, the regime agrees to nuclear talks. I ask also that you consider what pressure on Iran is accomplishing. Again, three things. First, containing the regime's ability to finance its proxy armies and international terrorist network. Second, restoring deterrence such that the Iranian regime can no longer escalate its proxy war on its own terms and kill US American citizens with impunity. And third, supporting the Iranian people's desire for change in the nature of the corrupt mafia-like dictatorship that steals and squanders their nation's wealth while denying them fundamental rights. So, Victor and I ask you to do your part to isolate the regime and support the Iranian people by voting for the resolution. Thank you, H.R. McMaster. 
Our next debater will be arguing against the resolution, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. Please welcome to the stage, Martha Crenshaw. Ladies and gentlemen, Martha Crenshaw. Thank you. Thank you. Well, with all due respect to my esteemed colleagues, Professor Milani, my debate partner, and I want to ask you to vote against the resolution. The first thing we want to do, and both of us want to do this, is question what it means to say that the maximum pressure campaign is working. Working to do what? My colleague, H.R. McMaster, has mentioned uh, three things, uh, containment, deterrence, and protecting the Iranian people. And we want to argue that we don't think that it's accomplishing any of those goals. Maximum pressure should be in the service of a larger policy toward the greater Middle East, uh, a larger sort of grand strategy to create some sort of stable region in the Middle East and to pursue and protect American interests in the Middle East so that we don't have a return to the 1980s. And we really question whether or not this policy will do that because we don't see that it has a thought-out strategy behind it at all. Now, we're aware that when the policy was first announced uh, by the Trump administration that Secretary of State Pompeo listed about 12 conditions that Iran had to meet before the U.S. would lift the sanctions. And many experts on Iran don't think that any regime in Iran could meet all of those conditions and still stay in power in Iran. But let us go back, in effect, to what my opponent, uh, General McMaster, said, that we're trying to get Iran one to cut back on their nuclear program, to not become a nuclear power. Second, to curb its behavior in the region, aggression, provocation, support for proxies who attack American interests. These are certainly very important goals, and I don't think anybody disagrees with it. Uh, as you all know, the 2015 deal was directed at the first of these things. It was the nuclear issue and not so much Iran's behavior in the region. So has maximum pressure done better? Well, look at some of the recent events. Just, what, yesterday, uh, the IAEA announced that Iran is uh, exceeding the supply of uranium enrichment, so they've gone back to enriching uranium, and they're building more centrifuges. Then if we look at Iran's behavior in the region, which indeed in the past year or so has been extremely provocative, there is no doubt about that. So in fact, before the U.S. abandoned the agreement, Iran was abiding by the nuclear agreement, and they were more restrained in the region. So it really seems to us that maximum pressure, in many ways, is counterproductive, that it is not producing the kind of change in Iranian behavior that we really would like to see. As far as the issue of uh, deterrence, uh, I think that, that this is an issue that really is worth some thought and some discussion. Uh, what does it mean to deter Iran? Uh, is it possible to deter Iran? And let us also say that in the pursuit of deterrence or containment or halting progress toward nuclear weaponry or curbing Iran's provocative and violent behavior uh, in the region, if we're talking about what's effective and what works, we also have to look at what some of my students would call negative externalities. What are the other consequences beyond the effect on Iran of maximum pressure? It's alienated our allies on whom we depended to enforce sanctions. Well, I agree that diplomatic efforts to contain or deter Iran, to, to prevent Iranian bad behavior would be a good idea, but we simply don't see the diplomacy part of maximum pressure. We don't see the political part. What we see is an increasing reliance on the use and the threat of force to try to deal with Iran. Now, we think that one of the reasons that we were able to reach an agreement in 2015, limited albeit it was, was precisely that we had our allies with us. It doesn't look as though the Trump administration is going to be able to reach that kind of unity at all. Thank you, Martha Crenshaw. I'm John Donvan. We'll be right back with more opening statements from our debaters.
And a reminder of what's going on, we're halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. The maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. Please welcome military historian and author Victor Davis Hanson. Ladies and gentlemen, Victor Davis Hanson. Everybody in the audience, I think, and our colleagues on the stage agree on two things that this theocratic revolutionary government should not have nuclear weapons. And second, we do not want uh, the Iranian people to be denied popular will. We want the majority of opinion to be codified in a constitutional government. What we disagree is how to achieve those noble aims. This regime has a propensity to target the vulnerable and those who are considered in the world in general and society as sacrosanct. By that I mean this revolutionary government was born in attacking an embassy and diplomatic personnel. It attacked the American embassy in Baghdad most recently. Now, what's different about maximum pressure? Why should we expect any different results? Well, it's not 1979, it's not 1983, it's not 1986, not 2011, it's not even 2015. It's 2020 and the world has changed. The United States is the largest producer of gas and oil in the world, and next year will be the largest exporter. Whether we like it or not, the Middle East is not so strategically necessary for our survival, which means Iran does not have the levers of influence and power over us that it did. If it shuts the Straits of Hormuz down, it would be terrible for the world economy, but that's a blow to the largest importer of Middle East oil, the European Union, or the largest exporter of merchandise into the region, China. So we have an independence and autonomy from the region that we've never enjoyed before. There has always been a split in the Muslim Middle East between Shia and Persians and Arabs and Sunnis, but nobody in their right mind as late as 2010 or 12 would think in popular polls of the Arab world, the most of the Arab split, the vast majority would see the Iranian government as the existential enemy and not Israel. Translated strategically, that means when we engage on maximum pressure that most of the people, most of the Muslims, that is, of the Middle East are siding with us. That's absolutely unthinkable 10 years ago. And third, Donald Trump is many things. People hate him, they tolerate him, they like him, but he is one thing. He is unpredictable, and that's of some advantage in strategic diplomatic poker. He can say anything, do anything on any given day to anyone, and that creates a sense of fear in a government that has all too rarely feared us. Maximum pressure is not a proactive strategy. It's not nation-building. It's not preemptive invasion. It's a passive, don't tread on me. What we're essentially saying is, we're disengaging from you. We've had enough. You do your best, and we'll do our best. If you want to be free of the satanic West, the big Satan, go ahead and do it. We just don't want to trade with you anymore. We don't want to have any financial dealings with you, and we don't want our allies to either. And that leaves the decision on what to react, what to say, entirely in Iran's hand. They have three choices, don't they? They can say, the deal was flawed from its essence, it should have been comprehensive. They could say, you know what, you're right. Mao's China in the Cold War had a complete autonomous economy. We don't want to have anything to do with the West, and go ahead and have all this maximum pressure, and it doesn't bother us a bit. We'll just divorce from you and the world at large. Or they can continue where they are, and they can use terrorist surrogates and have denial of culpability as they have for 40 years, and they will always time that attack during an election because they want to always hope that the next administration will be somewhat less severe than the prior one. Iran has an illustrious history. It goes back 2,500 years to pick up Herodotus or Thucydides, classical authors. There's nothing but respect and appreciation of a hallowed culture. It was this government who said that history started in the 8th century, and they uh, erased a thousand years of illustrious history, and we want to bring that back and have Iran come back into the family of nations. Thank you, Victor Davis Hanson. Our resolution again, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working, and here to make his opening statement against the resolution, Abbas Milani, Iranian Studies Program Director at Stanford University. Ladies and gentlemen, Abbas Milani. These are not defense of this policy. These are indictments of the regime. I share fully those indictments, and I think they're inadequate. The regime is more mendacious than they pointed. The biggest crime this regime has committed is against the Iranian people. 
For 40 years, it's not just the last year, it's for 40 years this regime has lied to its people, it has uh, bankrupted the country, it is incompetent, it is corrupt, and it is wrecking havoc in the region. That's not what we're discussing. A vote for one side or the other is not a vote for this regime. This regime deserves to be condemned. But this policy deserves to be rejected because it is unclear on its purpose, it is random in its pur uh, the way it is used, and it is damaging the Iranian people who are the only people who can change this regime. We cannot have peace in the Middle East without a more democratic Iran. A more democratic Iran can be created and will be created by the Iranian people. We cannot create Iranian history. We don't need, we don't, we in Iran have preserved our cultural history, our cultural heritage for 2,500 years. We will continue to do it. We don't need Greek philosophers to teach us. We have our own philosophers. What we do need, what we do need is a wise U.S. policy. I am for maximum pressure, but maximum pressure on the regime, not maximum pressure on the Iranian people. I am for maximum pressure, but one that is used with a surgeon's scalpel, not a bludgeon. I am for maximum pressure that bans every member of the Iranian regime that has ever killed anybody from traveling abroad. I am for maximum pressure on confiscating every dollar that this regime has stolen and has brought outside. But this policy, it's unclear on what its purpose is. The reason they don't talk about this is because the administration doesn't know. Sometimes they tell us it is regime change. Sometimes they tell us it is simply the changing the behavior of this regime. If a regime is as mendacious as these two gentlemen have articulated, how can you expect that regime to change its behavior? This regime has lied to its people. It is going to lie to everybody else. The way to move forward is help the Iranian people get rid of this regime. The way you do that is help them not interfere in politics. You help them by not trying to decide who the next regime in Iran will be, but you help them equal the playing field. Maximum pressure has worked in one sense. It has weakened this regime. There is no doubt in my mind that this regime today is weaker than it has ever been. It isn't because of maximum pressure. The regime is weak economically because it is corrupt, it is incompetent, it is rapacious. Maximum pressure has exacerbated an already damaged economy, an already plundered economy, an already bankrupt economy. The Iranian people are the victims of this regime. They should not be held hostage. You cannot deny medicine to the Iranian people. You cannot deny food to the Iranian people. This kind of policy is only serving the worst elements of the Iranian regime. Thank you, Abbas Milani. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters stay seated and they have conversations with each other. They also take questions from me and from you, members of our live audience. Just to recap, I want to point out that what we, what we see on this stage is there, there are no apologists for the Iranian regime here. It's clear that the end goal that all four debaters want is strikingly similar. Where they disagree, the team arguing for the resolution, H.R. McMaster and Victor Davis Hanson, are, are saying that a maximum pressure campaign alone is the way to force Iran to change. They cite a litany of 40 years of uh, venality, uh, outright evil, violence by the Iranian regime. They do not think that that's going to change. They say that attempts to do so through conciliation, through the principle that goodwill begets goodwill, has failed again and again and again. They point out that the only times during those 40 years that the Iranians have actually been willing to change their behavior is when they have been under intense pressure. Intense pressure, they say, is what which restores uh, deterrence and actually supports the Iranian people. So they also say that in 2020, the U.S. is in a better position than it has ever been to exert this sort of pressure because Iran lacks leverage in a way that it hasn't over the last 40 years until this moment that we're in now. The team arguing against the resolution, Martha Crenshaw and Abbas Milani, they're saying, first of all, they are not 
at all anyway making a defense of the Iranian regime, but they're saying that they feel that the uh, Trump administration's current maximum pressure policy is unclear, it is random, it is hurting the Iranian people. It's not materially leading to the kinds of con results that it is supposedly aiming for, such as containment and deterrence and protecting the Iranian people. And they cite a litany of incidents and events from just the past two to three years in which they say Iran is acting more provocatively, especially since the Iran deal was torn up, for example, they are enriching uranium already, while conceding that uh, the uh, maximum campaign, pressure campaign has weakened the Iranian regime. They say that it, has, it was weakened already. So there's a lot to, to go into there. But uh, first, Abbas, I want to go to something that you said in your opening remarks, which makes me wonder just how much you agree with a lot of what the other side is saying, because you cited forms of maximum pressure that you say you're okay with, that's from a list that's in some ways overlapping with what your opponent said. You know, maximum pressure on diplomatic, for example, and other forms. So what I want to understand is what is the maximum pressure campaign that you're saying is not is random and is, is ineffective, so that I know for sure where it is that you, this team disagrees with your opponents. For example, there is a ban of untravel of Iranians. This is before this crisis that has now necessitated banning travel from Iran because Iran, because of the incompetence of this regime, has been the second exporter or the third exporter of the, the virus. But before this, Iranians were banned from traveling into the United States. That's counterproductive. The Iranian people should be allowed to come in. Regime elements should be banned from coming into the United States. Food should never have been banned. Medicine should never have been banned. Today, the United States should announce that we are allowing an internationally supervised institution to bring as much as masks, gels, medicine for this. That is both goodwill to the Iranian people and long-term policy prudence. Let me take that to your opponent, uh, Victor Davis Hanson, where you, you are actually arguing, Victor, for... A, a, a kind of disengagement, the mother of all disengagements from Iran, that, you know, just cut ties, cut business, we don't want your sales, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Did you hear from your opponent? Uh, yeah, uh, I did. Uh, yeah. But we have to put it, again, in the context, why are we here tonight? It's because Iran was on its way to get a nuclear weapon and that 40 years of deterrence had failed because it wasn't as effective enough to stop them. We all empathize with the short-term pain and suffering of the Iranian people that may occur from maximum pressure, but that is minuscule in comparison if they develop a nuclear arsenal because it's going to trigger a nuclear uh, proliferation throughout the Middle East. The Gulf monarchies, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, maybe even Jordan, will feel they have no alternative to deter this government other than become nuclear itself. And the potential human toll will make what's happening now look like nothing. And then the second thing, these arguments have a long history, and we all understand that clamping down on an authoritarian and dangerous regime causes short-term suffering. Short-term suffering is justified, as bad as that sounds, if you have a long-term solution. So you heard, you heard from, in Martha's opening statement, she talked about, basically she made the case that the Iranians are acting more provocatively since the, especially since the Iran deal was torn up, and that, and, and therefore that's a challenge to your point that being tougher with them will get them to change their behavior. Well, with all due respect to my friend Martha, that's just not true. Actually, what happened is the relief that they got under sanctions relief, uh, sanctions relief, let's think about what that does, right? We're talking about how tough sanctions make it on the Iranian people. Actually, the sanctions are helpful to the Iranian people because they don't legitimize the government like the way sanctions relief and the Iran deal did. Actually, the, the influence of, of the reform movement within Iran was diminished by the Iran nuclear deal. Since the reimposition of sanctions in 2018, the effect has been on the economy has been significant. In 2017, thanks to sanctions relief, the Iranian economy, which is, by the way, captured by the corrupt order that's in charge in the, in the country, economy was growing in 2017 by about 3.7%. Uh, by 2018, the, the economy was, was contracting by 4.8%. Last year, it contracted by 9.5%. What was the impact? a 28% reduction in Iran's defense budget. That is part of what is a logical, comprehensive strategy aimed at isolating the Iranian regime financially and drying up the funding 
to the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps and Iran's proxy armies in the region. Abbas. The failure of the reform movement, again, it wasn't because of the nuclear deal. You're absolutely right. The regime got the money, and much of it they spent on nefarious activities. But the reform movement failed because Khamenei clamped down on it. Khamenei said no deal with the United States. Everybody else can come in except the United States. I, w- I want to jump in with one of the core principles that your opponents are arguing. In making the case for maximum pressure, they are positing that at one pole and at the other end, the, the, the approach that they refer to as goodwill beginning goodwill. They say the record shows goodwill does not beget goodwill with Iran. Can you take on that point, Martha? Well, I'm glad you raised that question because I thought about that the minute I heard that goodwill, conciliation. Uh, I'm not sure the kind of pressure that led to the 2015 agreement could be described as conciliatory or goodwill. Let me just stop you for one second. Just for definitional (laughs) purposes, not to get you saying a lot, would you say that that agreement does demonstrate your principle, that it was conciliatory, the Iran deal? Absolutely. Okay. Just so we know where your opponents stand on this. Okay, okay. go. We we disagree (laughs) on that point. But it'd be interesting to hear why. Yes. Well, I think that there were a lot of extremely painful aspects to the sanctions that led up. In fact, we could I, say... I would agree with that, Martha. I'm yeah. sorry. I, w- I would agree that what led up to the, the deal okay. what was, was effective pressure. That's okay. one of the points. That's why maximum pressure worked then. It works now. Ah. But, the, but the way that the deal was constructed and the artificial separation of the narrow parts of the nuclear program mm-hmm. from Iran's nefarious activity... Actually, it didn't just, that wasn't benign. What that did is the relaxation of sanctions allowed them to ramp up that nefarious activity dramatically. But but surely uh, a coordinated international diplomatic action combined with sanctions and pressure could accomplish a lot more than sanctions and the threat and use of military force. Because remember, if Iran is actually being set back in terms of its nefarious activities in the region, why did we take the very risky step of killing Soleimani, which in effect really uh, consolidated the power of the regime in Iran more than it undermined it? So that is a big question in my mind. Victor, I want to take that question to you, but I want to put it inside this framework. Your opponents argued in their opening statements that the maximum pressure policy isn't really a policy, it's the absence of a policy. I, I think in the sense that in the past, U.S. action in, in the region has, has involved a sort of grand stream, scheme, working with allies, having clear targets, knowing where they want to go, at least where they want to go, and that there's really no great big strategy here other than you're, you're advocating disengagement as a strategy. I think they're saying that's sort of not a strategy in the sense that we understand it. Thank God there's not. We had a grand strategy on the, the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I don't think any serious observer thought that in 15 years, Iran was going to say, you know what, I've decided that I'm never going to have nuclear weapons. They were going to aggregate money and keep up with nuclear expertise and research, and then after the end of 15 years, they were going to spring a bomb on I think most people understood that. But I want to get back to an earlier point. I wish human nature was predictable and followed uh, my colleagues predictions, but unfortunately it doesn't. When we got into an analogous situation with China, patent infringement, trademark, cheating, dumping, currency manipulation, everybody said you cannot confront China, you'll hurt the Chinese people, or they're becoming westernized, one day they'll be like Carmel if we just allow a little bit more latitude. What happened is when we confronted China, what did we learn? That this was a corrupt, unstable government. In just the year and a half we've learned They have a million people in re-education camps. Nobody was even talking about that before, at least outside of a few people. And then we've learned that they have an Orwellian surveillance campaign of their own people. Now we've learned they lie about the coronavirus. More from Intelligence Squared U.S. when we return. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Now back to round two of our debate. Uh, Abbas and Martha, um, you, you cited the, the missile attack that, that killed General Soleimani. Do you think that, that seems to be very much in the vein of maximum pressure? What is your concern about that? My c- concern about it uh, is, first of all, it was against international law. 
it brought the international uh, system of targeting the commander, the second person in line of an authority. I know Qasem, I don't like Qasem Soleimani. Qasem Soleimani has thousands of life on his hand, hundreds of thousands of Syrians, Iraqis, U.S. soldiers, Iranians, but he was the second in command in Iran. He was the second most powerful. If you go after him and hit him the way you hit him, you open the world to a new set of improbable things. But I want to say one point about the nuclear deal. Be- in- before you do, yes. I just want to stand this point for a moment. I want to take it to HR, the, the, the killing of General Soleimani. Well, I think it was the righteous use of violence. Uh, and it was... It was, it was uh, it was righteous because of, of everything you mentioned, Abbas. And, and you know, I don't think, you know, I don't really care that it, what international law said. I think Article 2 of the Constitution gave the president the authority uh, to do what he, to, to make the decision he made. Do you, what do you, you have to consider, do, though. Do, do, you, do, you really to, not, do, you, do you really not care what international well, law no, says? About this case? About, no, no, about I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be cute. No, I mean, in this situation, yeah. No, I mean, this is, this is a man who was traveling the region at that moment for the specific purpose of planning mass murder attacks against Americans in the region. And but so, that was his job. So it would have been negligent. <laughs> it would have been negligent not to kill him. And, and uh, in, in fact, well, you have to consider, Abbas, you, you talk about how this could be escalatory. Actually, not attacking the IRGC directly, right? Pretending like we don't know what the return address is for all, for all these deaths of Americans in the region for decades, actually allowed the Iranian regime to escalate really on its own, right? Unfettered by any kind of fear of, of reprisal. Well, I do care about international law, and I'm sure General McMaster does too. I, I know. <laughs> but let me add another point to what uh, General McMaster said. I think hitting Soleimani had one very important positive impact. It scared the bejesus out of the Iranian regime. Isn't that their point, though? No, that's part of their point. There is a gain to be made by scaring the regime, but there is a cost to be paid by breaching international law. The United States cannot be seen as the country that can take the law into its own hand at at any moment, not a terrorist, mere terrorist. The United States might have called him a terrorist, but he was an official member of that regime. What I'd like to say is he was a a designated terrorist organization by that time. And the definition of terrorism is the use of violence against innocents for political purposes. That's the definition of what his job was. And so he was a terrorist. He was a designated U.S. terrorist. He was plotting against the United States. And the president has the responsibility and the authority under Article 2 of the Constitution to protect the American people. So I didn't say that. So I, mean, I think you made the right decision. Um, all right. I'd like to go to some audience questions. If, are there questions? If you could stand up, thanks. It seems like everyone agrees that the uh, 2015 agreement wasn't effective at stopping nefarious activities. I haven't heard a clear agreement of whether the maximum pressure will stop Iran from developing a nuclear weapon and lead us to a situation similar to what we have with North Korea. Thank you. H.R. McMaster. Why would you say that I don't think the 2015 agreement did that either? The 2015 agreement had a sunset clause and it was going to expire. The 2015 agreement didn't have adequate inspections and monitoring. If you recall, the same day the agreement but wait, was announced... Was that, that, your question was not about 2015, no, you, was it? Wasn't it, wasn't it, will maximum pressure, will maximum yeah, pressure right, stop right. Iran? Right, right. Not, not did the 2015, but will yeah. maximum pressure? Yeah, yeah. It, it might or, or it might not, right? So I, I think what's, what's important is that the regime be forced to make a choice, right? The problem is previous approaches have allowed them to have it both ways. And, and we really didn't have confidence anyway that it was going to prevent a nuclear weapon and, and the range of capabilities that are, that are related to a nuclear weapon, like the missile capabilities, for, for example. So it was like the worst of both worlds for us because the regime got the big payoff and we didn't really have the but, assurances but his answer, that, that, it, 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 that agreement did not block their path but to nuclear weapon. But his question, will maximum pressure stop Iran from... We don't, you we don't, don't know. You don't, we don't know. Honest answer is you don't know. I would say there's, you know, of the alternatives, not everything is in our control, but, but maximum pressure is the best way uh, to, to both restrict the regime's nefarious activity, destructive activity in the region, and at least limit the resources they have available to apply, for example, to a nuclear program. Martha. Well, 
I'll just let HR speak for himself. We don't know. So there we are. But we do know. No, actually, <laughs> I make a point. actually, we do know. I, 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 I actually like the intellectual honesty. I want to give you points for no, that. I can make we a point. Know. We do know that Iran feels that the present situation is unsustainable. Thanks. If you could stand up, please. Sure. Um, a question for the gentleman on the left-hand side. That's the team arguing for the resolution. For the resolution. It's about humanitarian impact on Iranian people. Mm-hmm. I heard General McMaster mention about Syria and the role that Iran has and the fact that it's causing humanitarian issues. But then I hear Mr. Hansen talks about the humanitarian impact on Iranian people as a temporary issue. How is it that the impact on my people, not having food, not having medicine, is just dismissed as temporary issue? It, ha- it has. And we have great empathy for the Iranian people. We have great empathy for the North Korean people. But we don't live in a perfect world. And we've lived with a revolutionary government for 40 years. And the logical end of all of their aggression is a nuclear weapon. And unlike most countries, they've talked, at least informally as reported in the West, about they would use various anecdotal information. They'd use it against Israel. They'd use it against other countries. They've even threatened us with it. And so at this point in this long relationship, if that's the proper term, we don't have a lot of options. And we would like the Iranian people to rise up and throw it overthrow this government. We would like to cripple it. We're desperate to find a solution because we're not going to sit here and allow that country to get a nuclear weapon because we feel that unlike democracies like France or Britain or us or India, they will use it and they will use it preemptively. That regime will. In nuclear strategy, there's no second chance. The fact that they, are, they have a history of aggression against Western interests and the United States in particular, and you have a force multiplier factor of a nuclear weapon, that puts everybody in the sphere in the United States in danger. And every government has a responsibility to their own people first. Let me, HR, you wanted to jump I just in? Say, I think there's just, we have to get some facts on the table. Medicine is not prohibited under the sanctions. Food is not restricted. In the last week, the Trump administration made clear again, hey, we, we don't, do not want to stop medicine going in, uh, to, especially in connection with the, the coronavirus and the treatment and so forth. So, uh, you know, of course, sanctions hurt the people. They hurt the people. I'm not debating that at all. But, but, I, but I just want to make clear that medicine is not okay. prohibited. I just want to let the other side the, respond. Well, I think that sort of saying, well, near-term suffering is fine because it will lead to long-term benefit for everybody, and then saying, we're not sure, though, about these long-term benefits, so short-term suffering might just be long-term suffering, and that's the policy. I just don't think that's very successful or effective. So, so the, the, I, I, think, I think the questioner was asking a moral question, and you are saying, in addition to what the moral issues are, that it pra- practically speaking, it also both doesn't... Together. Both together. Abbas, uh, one more thought on that? Uh, General McMaster is right. Medicine was technically excluded, but practically it was included. No bank would allow a, a, a deal. I can speak with specific detail. Last week, through uh, Switzerland, they have now opened the path. They should open it much more extensively. Medicine should not be banned, period. Yeah, I think we, obviously we all agree on that. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. I want to move on now to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first in our closing round to argue in support of the uh, resolution one last time, please welcome H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor. Well, I just want to begin by thanking my colleagues for a lively debate. I think the course of the debate didn't change the three facts. The three facts that if you accept these facts, you don't have an alternative to maximum pressure. Fact one, the dictatorship is driven by an ideology that makes them permanently hostile to the United States and others, right? A lot of others. Second, conciliatory approaches don't work. So if you don't like maximum pressure, what do you like? It sounds like they like the conciliatory approach, which we know demonstrably has failed, right? What's the, what's the definition of insanity attributed to Einstein sometimes? You know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? And then the third, when Iran has moderated behavior, it's when there has been pressure. And I think what you're seeing is the regime moderate its behavior now. I would say that, that our opponents are advocating for the continued 
failed pattern of the past. Uh, I would like to also say that the effects of maximum pressure are demonstrable, constraining the resources available to the regime. We, I mean, a lot of their budgeting is opaque, but they have less money and therefore can do less damage overall in, in, the, in the region. In terms of deterrence, I think now Iran realizes we know the return address for the, the, their murderous attacks, and the strike on Soleimani has, in large measure, I think, restored a degree of deterrence. Not that they're going to stop their proxy wars. I mean, it's like the Geico commercial. That's what they do. I mean, they can't, they can't help themselves. But I think they're going to think twice uh, because, because we are now, I think, willing to impose costs on the Iranians beyond those that they factor in at the beginning of, of, their, of their decision making. But the real point that I would like to hit home is that this is the best course for the Iranian people. The conciliatory approach, the resources it made available to the regime, those were put to the regime's uses to strengthen their grip on power and stifle the people's desire for a say in how they're governed. Thank you, H.R. McMaster. The resolution again. The maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working here to make her closing statement against the resolution. The author of Explaining Terrorism, Martha Crenshaw. We think that maximum sanctions is punishing. It does inflict pain on Iran and on the Iranian people. But beyond that, has it produced any results? Remember, it is also accompanied by an American policy that threatens the use of force, even if the risk of escalation is very high. We've also heard from our opponents in this debate that we don't know where it's going. There's a hope that it will produce some sort of compliance on Iran's part. There is no evidence so far up to now that it's produced any compliance whatsoever. So we are asked to support, in effect, what is a leap into the unknown. I think we can perceive and understand the costs of maximum pressure much more clearly than we understand what the benefits are. Now, in terms of does this deter Iran to use force, to threaten force, well, most theorists of deterrence will tell you that if you have to use force against your adversary, deterrence has failed. If deterrence is successful, they don't threaten. Well, we cannot say that if this is a policy of deterrence, and I'm not convinced of that at all because it's still not clear, to me at least, what the general nature of inflicting pain is. You can inflict pain for the sake of pain, but then you've got to show results. We know the reality of the suffering of Iranian people. We do not really see that it's separating, punishment is separating them from the regime. Do we have any clue of what kind of regime might replace the current clerical regime? Should there be regime replacement? I think that it is a very risky strategy, and I urge you to vote no. Thank you, Martha Crenshaw. The resolution again, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working, and here to make his closing statement in support of the resolution, military historian and author Victor Davis Hansen. The maximum pressure campaign was not our first choice. It was our last choice. It didn't come in year one of the Iranian revolution. It came in year 40. It wasn't to start a war. It's to prevent a war. It wasn't to hurt the Iranian people. It was to help them. This is a reaction to what we call the Iran deal, which was formally entitled the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. What a cruel joke that was. It wasn't at all a joint plan of action because no sooner was the deal signed, it was bypassed by the U.S. Senate, by the way, which would never have given two-thirds of approval, and it is a treaty. But members of the Supreme Leader's clique were already saying they wouldn't follow elements. There was no joint uh, effort to make this deal work. Second, it was not comprehensive. There were not missiles involved. There were not any sanctions about any mention of terrorism. There was no idea that there would be spot instantaneous inspections. It wasn't a plan of action at all. It was a 15-year plan of inaction, at which time it expired and they were free to do what they wanted. What we're seeing here is an age-old debate it really is. This is what Demosthenes was, was being attacked for when he said you have to stand up for Philip. This is what Churchill was attacked in the 1930s when he tried to warn people that the logical trajectory of Hitler was something that ended up at Auschwitz. When you say that you're for deterrence and you want to finally, have, you've had enough and you, you're, you're exasperated and you want to get tough and deter an enemy, obviously that's a long-term goal. In the short term, it, it requires misery, it requires discomfort, it requires tragedy. But 
it's not just being conciliatory. It can also be appeasement, that the more you deal with it, the more you have frameworks, the more you have an Iran deal, the more emboldened, as I said earlier, the more your opponent, they always will interpret that outreach not as magnanimity to be reciprocated, but weakness to be always exploited. Thank you, Victor Davis Hanson. The resolution, one more time, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. Here to make his closing against the resolution, Iranian Studies Program Director at Stanford, Abbas Milani. I'm not suggesting conciliatory approaches to Iran. General McMaster, you know me better than that. Part of the problem with this debate in Washington is that it has been polarized. Those who are in favor of this uh, proposition uh, see everyone who has the slightest criticism of it as someone who wants to compromise with the regime. There are people in Washington who have criticized this policy because they essentially work on behalf of the Iranian regime. I don't work on the behalf of the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime actually thinks I'm a CIA agent that literally they have been saying this for 15 years. This is not a trial of Barack Obama. This is not a trial of Bush. This is also not a trial of Donald Trump. Voting on this should depend on whether you think this policy will work. And this policy will work whether in our version, which I think is the only way maximum smart pressure on the regime will help the Iranian people get rid of of a regime that has been a cancer on Iranian society, on the region and the world. The only way we can get rid of this regime is with the help of the Iranian people. The U.S. has a role to play, and if they play it wisely, they can help in this process. So vote for our resolution. Hopefully, we will win. Thank you. Thank you, Abbas Milani. And that concludes closing statements in round three. I, I have the final results now. Before the, res- before the debate, we had you vote. We had you vote again. After the debate, we give... Uh, victory to the team whose numbers move up between the first and the second vote. On the resolution, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. On the first vote, 41% agreed with the resolution, 38% disagreed with it, 21% were undecided. On the second vote, again, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. The first vote was 41%, the second vote was 45%. They picked up four percentage points. That is the number to beat now. On the against side, the first vote was 38%. Their second vote was 48%. They pulled up 10 percentage points. That's enough for the team arguing against the resolution to be our winners. Congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. The debate you just heard was recorded live at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clay O'Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is Chief of Staff. Shay O'Mara is Director of Editorial. Connor Kerfman is our Creative and Marketing Strategist. Jen Zelmer is Senior Researcher. Rob Christensen and Mary Dewey are the Radio Producers. Damon Whittemore is our Audio Engineer. Robert Rosencrantz is our Chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks for listening.